Our psalm of the day this morning is found in Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in 2 Chronicles. Chapter 26, where we're reading this morning of the reign of King Uzziah, reading verses 1 through 23. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Minunites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds, both in the Shephelah and in the plain. And he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war in divisions according to the numbers and the muster made by Jael. The secretary, Messiah, the the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of fathers' houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. 
But when he was strong, he grew proud to his own destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hands to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, wrote, And Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings, for they said, He is a leper." And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this long passage, a contested passage about King Uzziah and his good start and his bad ending, we ask that you would give us understanding, that you would inspire us with minds to understand all that you have revealed, and that you would strengthen us in spirit to follow after you to be faithful and obedient, to receive your grace and to respond in gratitude. We ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Even though I'm not a golfer, there is something magical about the Augusta National. Confess that every year, somewhere around Easter, I hear that it is the Master's Weekend. And this doesn't bother me until really the late hours of Sunday afternoon. But I find myself actually turning on the TV, not having a great interest in the game of golf, but finding myself mesmerized by the setting of the Augusta National and just the winner, the person who gets to walk into all the prestige of taking the green jacket. Now, it is always late in the day, and this same thing happened in 2016 when 22-year-old Jordan Spieth was playing, and he had a commanding five-shot lead going into the 10th hole. The 10th hole, he then bogeyed, which for those who aren't golfers, sorry. Uh, The 11th hole, he bogeyed. It's bad. And then the 12th hole, he utterly has a collapse, and it's a quadruple bogey, which is not just bad, it's really, really bad. And so then when he comes to the 13th hole, His five-shot lead had been then reduced and erased, and he was at a three-shot deficit. He never recovered. He lost the Masters there on those three holes. He had played great, fantastic, superior golf for two and a half rounds. And then the final nine holes in which he was going to secure his victory and had a five-shot lead to do so, he has a collapse a debacle. It was utterly amazing. People were stymied by it. What just happened 
to Jordan Spieth. It was really a tale of two tournaments for him. The first two and a half rounds and then the final nine holes. And as we turn our attention to 2 Chronicles 26, it's crucial for us to note that same dynamic in the reign of King Uzziah, who reigned for 52 years, we're told, in Jerusalem. This was a long and prosperous reign that we learn of in the first 15 verses. But there's a drastic turn at verse 16, and verses 16 through 23 tell us of a period of unfaithfulness, where rather than faithfulness, there was unfaithfulness. Rather than obedience, there was disobedience. Rather than grace, there was a response of ingratitude and unthankfulness. And it is essential for us as we experience and know the renewing and the reforming work of God to pay very careful attention, close attention, to what takes place in Uzziah's life. Because these same dynamics, as we've discussed throughout 2 Chronicles, still apply to us today. And so there's two crucial questions for us to answer this morning. The first one is very simply this. What does life under the awakening grace of God look like? What do we learn from the first half of Uzziah's life? And here in verses 1 through 15, we see one thing about that awakening grace of God. And that is that our strength is found in seeking after God. Follow with me in the first verses. Verses 1 through 5, we just have the general commendation of Uzziah's reign. And in verse 4, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to his father Amaziah had done. And so he received the commendation that good kings had received. And then in verses 6 through 15, you learn of why he was commended, of his great accomplishments. And there were many. We learned that there were military victories in verses 6 and 7. So he expanded the borders of Israel. We learned that there are civic infrastructure projects that take place in verses 9 and 10. And then we learn a very particular interest that he had, that he was a man of the soil in verse 10. He was interested in agriculture and livestock. And then in verses 11 through 15, we receive great enumeration of the military strength that he built up. Now, the chronicler for us, who we don't know who the author exactly is, just tells us very simply two themes that characterize the positive side of Uzziah's reign. If you follow in verse 7 and 8, you will see these. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Minyanites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt. Two themes there, God's help and his fame spreading. You find that he caps this section in verse 15 with the same themes. In Jerusalem, he made machines for slinging. No, in Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners, to shoot arrows and great stones. His fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. And that is where Uzziah's strength was found. It was found in God's help. As he was helped, he was then strong. This was his strength and his fame spread. And so things went well for Uzziah. He had success as he found his strength actually in God. The whole sum of this message is found in verse 5. Uzziah set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, 
who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. This was the source. It was the foundation of Uzziah's strength, seeking after God. Now, this word seeking, we have alluded to several times now across all the records of the kings that we have looked at because it's a very particular word. There's actually two words in the original that we translate to seek or to inquire, and they appear 56 times in the book of Chronicles. And so this is a major programmatic theme, and it becomes crucial for us to understand what exactly does it look like to seek after God. Because if our strength is found in seeking after God, then we need to understand how exactly do we play that out. Is that a technique or some kind of prayer format that we're supposed to master? What exactly is it that what it means to seek after God? To summarize it, I believe there are four things that the book of Chronicles talks about as it directs us as to what it means to seek after God. Now, the first is that we are to observe the covenant that God establishes. The second is that we are to pursue right worship. The third is that we are to request guidance and counsel from God. And the fourth is that we are to request refuge and protection from God in times of distress. We're going to take a moment just to develop each of those because they are so crucial as to us finding our strength in God. And so follow along carefully with me. The first being that we're to observe the covenant or the law of God. If you turn back to chapter 15, you find this wonderfully summarized in the reign of Asa. In verse 2, it says that he went out to meet Asa and said to him, this is speaking of the prophet, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And then skipping down to verse 12, we find Asa's response. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and with all of their heart and with all of their soul. But whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death. And friends, this is what it looks like to seek after the Lord. It is to renew ourselves in obedience to the gracious covenant that he makes with us. This is not simply to put intensified effort around the precepts of God, the commands of God, even though it does involve that. But it, re it, it revolves around the intensified effort of pursuing the covenant that God has, which is not just precepts and commands, but it's also the promises of God. It's renewed interest in the redemption that God has worked on our behalf. And then what are the regulations that gratitude demands of us? And so this is what's being said under the reign of Asa. And what it looks like to seek after God is to seek after the God who has redeemed us and now commands us, who has a claim upon our lives. This is the first portion of what it means to seek the Lord. Now, the second is there's always an interest as the covenant is renewed, as the covenant is emphasized, there's an interest in right worship. In future chapters, in chapter 34, we'll see the boy king Josiah and his reforms in worship in which he was removing the idol shrines and he was uh, rebuilding the temple and purifying it. And the third piece to this seeking after God, after right worship, is there's also to be guidance that's sought from God. We saw this last week in chapter 18, if you turn there, under the reign of Jehoshaphat, verses 6 and 7, it is encapsulated for us. 
But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire or who we may seek? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire, of whom we may seek of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imla. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. And even though Jehoshaphat did not end up taking the advice, he was doing the right thing. The godly kings of Israel, when they were making important decisions, when they were plotting the course ahead of them, they were to pray and they were also to seek the counsel of the prophets. They wanted to hear the word of God, to direct them and instruct them in the way that they were to go. This also is involved with seeking after God. Now the final piece to seeking after God that we find in the book is that the word is also used in connection to when we are in distress. When the chips are down and there is nothing else that we can turn to. If you look in chapter 20, once again during Jehoshaphat's reign, in verses 3 and 4, we find a beautiful example of this. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. A great army was arrayed against him. And Jehoshaphat had learned his lesson well. When this had happened previously in his life, he had then turned and entered into a political alliance with Ahab, who was not a true worshiper and believer in the one true God. Now Jehoshaphat has learned that he doesn't find his security in his strength in these alliances, but rather he allies himself with God by coming to him helpless, by coming to him for refuge and defense. This is what Jehoshaphat then does at the end of his reign. And friends, this is what it means to seek after God. This too is involved. And so right worship, intensified covenant partnership, guidance and refuge in distress... This is what is commended to us. This is what Uzziah, while he was under the tutelage of the prophet Zechariah, did. We don't know much about this prophet. He is mentioned in chapter 8, most likely of Isaiah's prophecy. But he was Uzziah's mentor. He was his priest. He was guiding him. He was pastoring him. He was directing him. And as long as that relationship held... Uzziah walked faithfully with God. And friends, this is the challenge for us. Intensified covenantal partnership, right worship of God, seeking God's guidance, and calling out to God as a refuge in distress. It's knowing that in these postures, in this manner, this is how we are strong. It's the fundamental posture of weakness that we must rely upon God, God must be our defender, and God must be our shield. And when this happens, God promises that we will be marvelously helped. That's his pledge to us as we live in weakness. But we then have to consider what happens. What happened to Uzziah, and what can happen in the church? What can go so marvelously wrong? While we can be marvelously helped by God, what can go so terribly wrong and what can lead to the collapse? Verse 16 captures it. 
But when he was strong, he grew proud to his own destruction. And friends, this is what happens, is that our success becomes our strength. Our success becomes our confidence. And all that God gives us as gifts and marvelously helping us. I will get that out clean one of these times. All that God gives us and helping us then becomes a source of pride and confidence and security. And Uzziah's reign takes a drastic turn at that point. And we find that his strength does several things. And there's three things that I'd like you to look at. The first of these is that our strength leads us to self-confidence. You noted that the strength, the help that God was given in verse 7 and 8 and then in verse 15, that he was his helper and that his fame spread. But suddenly when we arrive in verse 16, Uzziah has become proud. And he's not looking to God to be his helper. He's not looking for God to establish his fame. No, rather he has established those things on his own terms. He's not looking to God's marvelous help. He's just looking at his own marvelousness. And so his gaze has changed and he is not living in this humble gratitude. And friends, this is what strength can do to us. It can dispose us to self-confidence. And this is one of the greatest errors that the church can make that leads to downfall. Now, the second piece of this is that our strength also leads to slothfulness. That is, it leads to laziness. In verse 5, we learn something very important about Zechariah. That as long as he was with Uzziah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. But then, obviously, when Zechariah was removed, something happened. And that was that Uzziah no longer sought the Lord. That his strength led to a slothfulness, to a laziness. And he was no longer pursuing the Lord in right worship. He was no longer pursuing intensified covenantal partnership. He was no longer pursuing the Lord as his refuge. He was no longer pursuing the Lord for guidance. He had grown lazy in all of these things because he was self-satisfied and he was content. He had such great strength. He had no need. This is what strength can do to us. The third thing that strength does is it leads us then into disobedience. That when we're self-confident and when we're slothful, inevitably there will be disobedience that follows. And the second half of chapter 26 records that disobedience. Where Uzziah does a strange thing. The kings of Israel had a very particular role. In chapter 17 of the book of Deuteronomy, we learn that role and what it looks like for them to yield and render obedience to God and to lead the people well. And in chapter 18, we learn that the priests of Israel were the only ones to make sacrifices and offerings on behalf of the people of God. The king has no permission to do so. And yet, what Uzziah does is he goes to make an offering, an incense offering, in the temple. And the priest, whose name is Amaziah, which name means helper, says, no, don't do this thing, Uzziah. And what was Uzziah's response? 
It says that he was angry. And friends, when he was confronted by Amaziah and also 80 other priests, courageous men, men of valor who came out and said, Uzziah, don't do this thing. You have no permission from God to do this. He grew angry. And then he received the gentle and disciplining hand of God. Because, friends, the way that we're to hear this is that Uzziah did not repent. Yes, he ran out of the temple once he was struck, but he did not repent. He did not turn. He didn't listen to the priest. He was angry at what they had to say. He was now hardened to what God's regulations were for him. He had grown hard to the redemption that God had visited on his life. He was now turning from all of that, and he was turning and seeking after another way. He sought to do what he had no permission to do. And this is where strength ultimately leads us, is that we come to trust in our own wisdom and our own way, rather than submitting ourselves to God's wisdom and God's way. And in this kind of condition, we can find ourselves having a marvelous first half and then a terrible debacle, falling apart in the second half because we grow strong and our pride gets the best of us and it begins to direct us and it guides us. We become self-confident. We become complacent and slothful and lazy and disobedient. And as the church that experiences the awakening and the grace of God, we have to be very careful that we then don't close it off and shut it down. The first great awakening in, in our nation's history is one of the most helpful. 1740s, 1742, we find the amazing grace of God breaking out on the church, people converting, people repenting, people who were half-hearted Christians coming back to the church and being renewed by God. And then 20 years later, we have the Unitarian movement emerge from those very churches. Friends, this is the nature of those who have been redeemed by God, the grace of God dwelling in us and then us hardening ourselves to it and going our own way. The last question for us to answer is that what needs to happen in the middle of that, in a church that can grow so incredibly strong and complacent and be self-satisfied, what needs to happen? If you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, important passage to recognize the context of Isaiah's life and also what God does in the midst of times of compromise and collapse. Now, in the middle of compromise and collapse, the church growth strategist will tell you that you need to have a pastor who wears skinny jeans, that they need to be relevant, that they need to be culturally aware, that they need to have new outreach strategies, that they need to do away with traditional things in the church like Sunday school, and that you need to find the best musicians that you can, and you need to do this, and you need to do that. But friends, one of the things that's so crucial for us to remember is that we cannot domesticate the grace of God. We cannot engineer it. We cannot awaken the awakening grace of God. We have no ability to do that. We have no permission, no access. God doesn't put that inside of our capacity. 
But what needs to happen in those times of compromise and collapse is that God has to renew a vision for his ways and his works among the people of God. That in the church, God has to renew that vision of his works and his ways with them. And this is what we see in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, for I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and, be- and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And what has to happen in the middle of the compromise of the church is that we need this confrontation with a holy God, his ways and his works on our behalf. And in that confrontation, there has to then move to confession, where we acknowledge that we're unclean and we've messed it up and we've gone afoul of the covenant and our covenant partnership is broken. But God has not forsaken us because on the other side of confession, there is this commissioning. We're assured that God has forgiven us and we're commissioned and sent out. Isaiah was sent to preach to the people to deliver the grace of God to them. Despite everything that had happened, That's what has to happen in the church, is a profound sense of dependence. That in being confronted by God and confessing our sins, that God always receives us in grace, and then he commissions us and recommissions us and sends us out. That's your strength, is living in that humble place, depending upon your God for any measure of success and giving him thanks for whatever measure of success may come, and not growing self-confident, not growing complacent, not growing proud, not growing slothful, not growing disobedient, but giving thanks to God and seeking after him. Let's do that. Let's walk in that way. Let's ask for his help to do so. Father, we're profoundly aware of our own sinful nature that still dwells in us. Even though it's been crucified in our Lord Jesus, we know that it harasses us. And like Uzziah, we can grow proud and strong and we can turn from you. Help us, God, we're weak. We need you to assist us. We need you to keep us humble, that we would continue to seek after you in all the ways that you command us. Give us grace, God. Fill us in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.